Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, the podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with a platform to perform. I'm your host, as always, Todd Davidson, and on episode 20 of the Platform to Perform podcast, I have UEFA B football coach and qualified PE teacher, George Green. How are you doing today, George? Yeah, not bad, not bad. Uh, sorry, it's taken so long to uh, get the podcast started, really. Um, but yeah, not bad. Yourself? Yeah, very well, mate. Very well. So to give the listeners a bit of an introduction to sort of how we both know each other. Um, so uh, met on PGC placement at my first uh, placement school, and we've enjoyed many chats about all things sport uh, in the process. So as you said, it's been a long time coming, this podcast. Yeah. Um, as you say, I mean, the amount of endless discussions we would have throughout the year. Um, and uh, interestingly enough as well, the debates, we ne- we'd we never sort of get to an answer because it was always back and forth. But yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed, enjoyed the time. All right, let's kick things off then. So UEFA B football coach, qualified PE teacher. Uh, we're going to discuss about teaching and coaching and all, all of everything in between. But why do you do what you do? That's a good question. Um, I suppose for me, obviously, I grew up in a house full of males. So I come from a large family. I've got four brothers, um, all very sporty. Um, so sport, obviously, was a huge theme through my childhood. Um, started playing sport at a young age. Um, and then I guess it was the natural progression. If you're not good enough to make it, which ultimately I wasn't in the end in football, um, coaching seemed like the next natural step. Um, so before I went to university, I started doing a little bit of coaching in football, gained some qualifications and then at university, uh, continued that professional development, um, and, ended up falling out of university in my final year. So completed it, but falling into a position uh, at a school, which I couldn't really turn down. It was too good of an opportunity straight out of university to turn down, um, in which they uh, agreed to pay for my teaching qualification. And so I sort of naturally just fell into this role, I would say. But I also would say, my decisions along the way, my passion for certain areas, being coaching, being sport, helped me maybe um, navigate down this route. Uh, not to say there aren't parts of um, the position I'm in at the moment that I don't get frustrated with, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. But um, yeah, I'd say that's the that's sort of the pathway for me so far. So you initially started off as a football coach and have sort of transitioned into teaching now, would that be fair to say? Or do you still do a bit of football coaching on the side? Yeah, no, I would say that's that's definitely fair. Um, I, I'm not doing any football coaching as much now. I was for a period of time. So last year I was doing some one-to-one football coaching with um, a few youngs- youngsters, young prospects. Uh, there was a kid who was at Cambridge who I was... Um, coaching who obviously I won't mention his name but yeah there's been a couple of kids along the way I've been doing some one-to-one stuff with 
So the obviously the dynamics of, for example, uh, one-to-one coaching, coaching in, say, a football context outside of a school environment, and then obviously you've got, for example, teaching PE within a school environment. Um, mm. So obviously different environments, but if you have a philosophy when it comes to teaching uh, people, coaching people, uh, how would you describe that philosophy? Um, cool, that's quite a detailed answer, I guess. Uh, I'd say for me, the, the main one for me is just uh, shaping people. And as cringy as that might sound, I do think there's a lot of power in that. Um, I think success in a sport, of course, it's going to come from skills, but a lot of it can come through the character and the sort of psychological matters you shape and help educate an individual on. So things like how motivated are these individuals? How determined are they? How resilient are they when they in the face of failure? Um, All of these are shaping the person. And I think in a way, I'd say it's on par with learning the skills of the sport um, to an extent, because how often do you see, uh, I mean, I know through football, I've seen some really talented footballers, but they have no character, no personality. And unfortunately, they fall by the wayside because when it came to the big occasions on game day, they failed ultimately individually, they failed. Um, and they didn't show what they have shown in previous games or in training. Um, and so I think a lot of the character building and the people shaping is massive. And that's definitely something I focus on within my philosophy when I'm teaching, when I'm coaching, is how can I shape the person um, while still, of course, making them the best version of themselves, uh, acquiring the skill. Yeah, I, I really like that. And we'll definitely get on to the psychological aims and how teachers and coaches can weave these into their sessions uh, later on in the podcast. Um, Something me and you have, I think, chatted extensively about uh, over the last year is the differences between teaching and coaching, whether a difference exists, and if it does, why should we care about that? Do do you think, Mm -hmm. especially where PE teaching is concerned, do you think a difference does exist? Personally, I would say yes. Um, I mean, without getting too far into sort of theories behind them, I think ultimately the obvious things are, especially from a sports perspective, I'll try and stay on that theme, but we're always training people when we're sports coaches for competition. And in teaching, you're just not training them for competition. And as much as, yes, there's some... borough competitions or county competitions it's just not on the same scale to what your um, sole purpose is as a sports coach is to train players to train but then to also compete Um, and so I think that's an obvious and clear difference if I was then going to a bit further and look at some subtle differences I would say small things that you do in teaching such as behavior management are more difficult when in sports coaching um in my experience anyway and i think that can maybe differ if you're doing individual sports coaching i think you have more of a personable relationship with individuals and therefore maybe your communication with parents can be more effective or behavior management can come into it a bit more and be more prominent 
but definitely when coaching a team you have zero behavior management other than um i'm going to drop you next game and if they're your best player you can't really afford to do that so that's where teaching gives you more flexibility more creativity with your behavior management um strategies i mean that's really interesting you say that because behavior management ironically for me um I wouldn't really describe myself as transitioning from a coaching environment to a teaching environment because I almost see it as they're on a similar scale with, as you said, subtle differences. Um, but it's interesting you said that behaviour management is harder in sports coaching because, as you said, you've only got um, one thing to really, one stick to sort of use if you want to describe it as that. Because um, one of the big learning curves for me this year has been... Uh, behavior management or even coaching kids who for example don't actually want to be there like for example if you were running say a sunday league team and a kid's turning up and he doesn't want to be there then if it's at a low enough level where like i said you're not getting paid or whatever then you can just say look if you don't want to be here then you know, yeah you don't yeah, have to be there whereas uh, <laughs> i don't think you'd have many school kids left if you said to every kid who didn't like PE, if you didn't <laughs> want to be there you can leave yeah no definitely I guess let me be a little bit more clear on that I suppose what I'm trying to say is for a sports coach I think they're in a disadvantaged position if they need to use that tool um in contrast to a teacher who I think is in a very advantageous position if they need to use behavior management strategies um but I, of course absolutely I've had times where I've um been coaching uh, a football team and I've had a player who consistently is disrespectful and not just to the coach but also their peers and teammates and I've said to the parents look if this continues I don't want him at this club and it's much easier to um, filter those individuals out of the system at that club or whatever it may be um, but I do think there's a, a little bit of a, a missed opportunity as well there. I don't know how you'd fill it, but I do think there's maybe more. Um, uh, you've got to be careful, of course, as well, because unfortunately within society, teachers are seen slightly differently and understandably so to a sports coach, despite the fact that the sports coach quite often, in my experience, knows the individuals slightly better than the teacher. Yeah. And that's simply just because they're not dealing with the same number of individuals. So, like for my experience, again, sports coaching, I was dealing with a much smaller scale of uh, players than I was when I was teaching. I was dealing with way more individuals. So it made it more difficult to have that personal relationship. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and in terms of either what teachers can learn from coaches or vice versa or indeed for example if you want to maybe touch upon your own personal examples of for example what you've learned from teaching that you've taken into your coaching or vice versa what do you think are the main transferable skills even though they are as you said very very similar yeah um so transferable is in which ones could you take from uh, one avenue into the 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 next and yeah. still have success yeah so if i give an example i think um a big thing that's sort of hammered into 
PGCE uh, students or trainee PE teachers. Um, and again, I know we've had a lot of discussions about this, which we'll come back to later, um, but is assessment for learning. And the idea mm. that in coaching, I would argue it's very easy to perhaps fall into the trap of, I've said something, therefore they've learnt it. Um, whereas, for example, in PE teaching, or certainly when you're being mentored, one of the big things is, right, where was your assessment for learning? How can you explicitly yeah. prove to me without just saying, I saw them improve, that they've understood what you've said. So that's one thing I think that would uh, benefit a coach with a teaching background. Um, mm. So yeah, that's just that's just my personal example. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think some that stand out, and this is me going right back to when I started teaching, is small things like aims. What were your aims in that time you had them? And did you achieve those aims so outcomes being another one um and similar to coaching you have a debrief at the end of a session with your clients or your players um just like you would when teaching a lesson so those were fundamentally the same just in teaching it was to hit a standard um not all the time i mean of course it's because you want to know as well but it can quite often feel that way um in contrast to coaching uh so i think that's one of the standouts for me just going back to the very start um i think yours is a very good one as well i don't think uh coaches would be as hung up on assessment for learning as teachers are um because and again this is just i think when you get to the top end of coaching there's you don't want to waste time you know you're trying to prepare these individuals for competition that you can't afford to waste time and i do think there is a lot of time wasted when you're trying to assess learning that ultimately is very difficult to assess in the moment um, and usually you need time to assess it usually you need competition to assess it so i think that's where the coach is will assess the learning most of the time is after competition and they'll assess what what did we do right what did we do wrong and how can we improve it um and so i think that's another huge uh difference between the two yeah yeah and i think i think the big difficulty is i would argue that a coach at a high enough level and a teacher who's familiar enough in the sport can visually see if, for example, what they wanted the outcome of the session to be, if they can see it. For example, let's say if, I don't know, the outcome is uh, playing out from the back at speed and you do, I don't know, a few activities or whatever, the coach may well see, oh yeah, now I'm starting to see that fluidity or whatever, however you would describe it. Mm. But then it's making it, do the people I'm teaching know that they've achieved it? Because for example, I, the analogy I use all the time, if you're teaching science and I don't know, let's say you're teaching the biology of a cell or whatever, and you put an exam question up and everyone gets it right, then, or, you know, whiteboards, you can be very confident that you've taught, they've learned, move on. Uh, yeah. Whereas I just don't think the learning in physical education or even the learning of movement, one, I don't think it's that linear. And two, uh, further to that point, something that you think they've learned and they've demonstrated it in weeks one and two, 
might go out the window in week three just because that's the way movement is. And if it was a constant linear regression, then, uh, well, you would see continuous improvements and uh, sport just wouldn't be as we know it. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, and again, just bringing it back to that assessment for learning, I mean, how often do you see really good ideas from teachers or, and methods to assess students' learning? But ultimately, there's no research or evidence that would support that idea. Um, and the clear stuff out there that I've come across is observations are huge. Um, and then a lot of these other, uh, obviously, student feedback and uh, colleague feedback are still very huge. But a lot of these small ideas and methods that are used we don't have great research to support so why spend as much as it might look really good on the eye and sound really good why spend so much time on that when we we know what works let's spend time on that because that we know matters not to say there's not a place for some of these strategies i think in some lessons there is a place for it sometimes these new creative ideas on assessing learning are worthwhile um, but I just think if you make it a common feature in lessons, as much as yes, again, it looks good if you've got an inspector coming in and they see, oh, this is a, I can tell this has been embedded over time. Actually, how much impact does it have? And that's ultimately what I think everything should come down to is how much impact are you having? And is it good impact or bad impact? And I think quite often um, when you get hung up on, uh, AFL's assessment for learning it can turn into quite a, a negative uh, method and strategy over time uh, if it's a continuous driven drilled theme in lessons yeah and I would almost go back to uh, something you're kind of alluding to there is I always think about it. in terms of impact I always think right who am I doing this for am I doing this for me and do my students think I'm doing it for me or am I doing it for their benefit? Because I remember vividly, um, and this would be probably one of my only, one of my main criticisms of poorly designed or poorly delivered assessment for learning activities is I remember delivering a lesson and uh, my mentor who we both worked with, he said, do you know how much time the students actually spent physically moving in your lesson? And I had a guess and I think it turns out it was 11 minutes and right. I was like right that's absolutely shambolic like obviously very inexperienced at the time obviously still learning but my assessment for learning activities were too time consuming my behavior management was poor and the session just didn't flow like I wanted it to um, and also I think the problem with the difficulty with PE is you've got to weigh up how much time it takes to get it done is it beneficial or is it just ticking a box? And is that time better spent simply practicing more of the activity or the game or you know whatever it is you're doing? Because I think one of the biggest mistakes for me in PE is where we ignore any of the research on skill acquisition, uh, which states that you do have to have more time uh, with deliberate practice. And yeah. I mean, we'll get into the intricacies of that a little bit later, but I think it's interesting that there's a lot of things delivered in PE or even in teaching in general that either A, have a weak research base 
or B, that research base almost doesn't exist and we just go with it because intuitively it sounds like it should be something that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Obviously, interesting to you mention about Ericsson's model of deliberate practice because I think that's something that is still missed, unfortunately, in coaching and in teaching. Um, and I can't get my head around it. I think I was very lucky as a young student to be mentored by I had a really good lecturer and he was a high level coach and he just was so forward thinking and so open to different ideas and I took a lot from that experience um and we I mean I can remember having conversations with him back then about time uh time on play so how often they actually are spending playing um and then repetitions as well. And is it blocked repetitions? Is it random repetition? Um, and the importance of random practice versus blocked practice, again, which is so often missed. And I mean, interestingly enough, we're probably going to go more back to the blocked practice method now, what with COVID-19 restricting stuff we can do. Um, so you're probably going to see more blocked sessions in teaching and in coaching in contrast to random i mean you can already see it at the elite level in football there a lot of the sessions are are blocked um but they've started to now progress into the more random practice as uh, things have sort of been a little bit more lenient with the footballers um but yeah i mean it's exactly that I, the ericsson model i love for the reason that it encourages you to get more time on play for student or individual player um in contrast to talking time from the coach and that's where you've got to be careful because you know like you say bringing it back to the start is it about you or is it about the individual the athlete um and i think you always have to have a tunnel vision with stuff like that and it always has to be about the athlete and just going into uh, Ericsson's model of deliberate practice and a couple of other things you've mentioned there. So for listeners who may not be familiar with what won the model, um, but if you could just give uh, an overview of what blocked practice might look like and why we might see more of it in COVID-19, uh, what random practice looks like, and then maybe finish with a little bit of Ericsson's model. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, so yeah, block practice, it's essentially uh, what you would see quite often um, even a novice might typically think of this as a way to teach sport, but it could be dribbling a football in and out of cones or standing with a partner 10 feet apart and passing the ball back and forward to each other. Continuous reps, um, but it's in a blocked manner. There's not much movement. It's not very dynamic. And it usually involves little equipment and not many individuals or players. Um, in contrast to random practice, so again i'll use the same examples so um blocked practice dribbling you're dribbling in and out of cones random practice dribbling now you're dribbling against the defender um so this is random scenarios that can occur um in situations you might have a moment where you're dribbling on your left foot and then suddenly you might have to dribble on your right instinctively um, in contrast to in a block drill you're most of the time going to be drilling a uh, dribbling a certain way and dr drilling it for that reason. Um, 
then in contrast to uh, passing one, so you're passing 10 feet away of a partner, random practice uh, could involve more players on your team, more players on the other team. Um, and now the passing is random. It's not back and forth. It could go to your right, could go to your left, could go beyond you, etc. cetera. Um, there's a good, another good one is in basketball. So having shots from free throw line, continuously drilling that, brilliant they're going to be amazing from the free throw line what about if you take one step to the right or one step to the left can you still make that shot something just changes everything suddenly they're not making the shot even though it's only a step to the right or a step to the left how can that be possible and that's simply because they haven't done random practice and that's where again in basketball it would be they take a shot or miss and it hits the rim wherever it lands they need to get there and take a shot from there and now suddenly they're taking shots from different spaces every single time it comes off the backboard or the rim. Um, and again, this is something that all elite coaches will do. You'll see it in all elite sport, not neglecting the block practice because there's still, I mean, that's a huge proportion still of that um, entry into a sport. When you're learning a skill for the first time, block practice is very important. Uh, but the random practice is where the learning takes place is what I would say um, where you develop that problem solving uh, and get individuals to start thinking outside of the box and cre creating solutions to what were problems. And if we go back to the model of deliberate practice, so I, I don't know whether you've ever come across a guy called, um, I'm going to butcher his surname, a guy called Doug Lemoff, um, who's written a book called Teach Like a Champion. And he mentions that in sports coaching in particular, especially where PE is concerned, that they will, when it comes to setting outcomes or aims of the session, they'll just say something like, oh, the aim today is passing. And he'll be right. like, well, great. You, you expect when someone like Xavi or Iniesta has spent 20 years mastering the art of passing and you've just had your aim as passing. Um, so this kind of alludes to the deliberate practice that you were mentioning. Um, so can you give, and feel free to give examples of this, but what does Ericsson's model of deliberate practice look like? And if you could give a bit of context with a session of your choice. Yeah, so, um, I mean, I won't neglect, obviously, I know Ericsson, it's a, I think it is a piece of research that he has done with other academics. So et al is what I'll say, um, Ericsson et al. Uh, but yeah, so it's essentially, it's all about desired performance goal um, and then sort of how, how you would execute a performance um, and then monitoring that, monitoring that performance should equal sort of your desired outcome goal. And what he means by deliberate practice and what uh, the studies show is that to improve performance in a domain, um, you must have engaging stru structured activities uh, created specifically for that domain. So, for example, if um, if I was uh, trying to improve my putting in golf, if I just kept doing five foot putts, and it sort of goes back to the basketball scenario, but if I was to continuously do five foot putts, when I get a seven foot putt on a competition day, I haven't practiced enough in situations like that to improve that putting 
and that random um, spontaneous uh, aspects of sport. Uh, so deliberate practice would be to have a variety of balls all over the green when in practice and putt them all at different um, distances and get used to that feel because it's great being able to give me a feel for what a five foot putt feels like and I'll get used to that. But as soon as it goes beyond that or shorter than that, I still need to know what that feels like. Um, and I think, again, not to get too much into it, but that uh, kinesthetic sort of feeling of um, knowing what things feel like is massive. I mean, we use it in demonstrations when we're coaching and teaching. Um, and so that's, that's what Ericsson's getting at is you need to be able to give your athlete a feel for every scenario. And so by having putts from all over the green in different spaces, different distances, they're still getting the repetitions. They're still learning how to putt. They're still using good techniques as long as the coach is there guiding it. Um, and you're getting them used to putting from different distances um, reading the green. It might be a right to left green. It might be a left to right green. Um, and so you're getting them used to that, that uh, aspect, which improves performance. Blocked we, practice can sometimes be victim of not always uh, being outcome focused and that's where you've got to, I think you've got to have a good balance if you're going to use it it has to be used at the right times and again what you've said there just sort of hits on my next question um, how do you ensure or what steps should you take to ensure with so if we imagine blocked practice on one end of the scale and let's say you've got a mixed ability group and let's just take that 10 yard passing drill or dribbling in and out of cones um, that you mentioned. So let's say you've got a mixed ability PE group. Now for some who've never dribbled a football before, that dribbling in and out of cones, even though it's a completely closed drill, is actually really, really difficult. Whereas for your kid who's a high ability kid, maybe plays from academy, whatever, that's, you know, that's ridiculously easy. Um, how do you find the right balance between making it random enough that skill will hopefully transfer but also getting enough time on task from a deliberate practice perspective. So for example, if you just went into a game, then especially where PE is concerned, the better players are going to dominate. The weaker players who ironically need as many touches of the ball as possible to almost try and catch up fall further behind. Um, how do you strike that balance within the context of a PE, PE lesson, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. Um, and I think this is where uh, teaching, it, this, I think this question relates more to teaching than it does coaching. Yes. Because most of the time coaching, you're going to have similar ability students. But yes, in teaching, I think this is where it comes down to being observant. So if you can see you've got students that are um, lower ability uh, students, that's where you need to be good at grouping them, getting them into a space, a safe space for their learning. And the same with, as you were saying, a high ability student, having them in a safe space for their learning where you can still have success with those students by um, using blocked and random practice. Now, which one is more suited for which student? I would say they're both suited for both students. Um, but 
you have to, I think you have to be careful how much um, emphasis you put on either. I think it always is going to come down to situation. If I have students who um, are struggling with throwing a tennis ball to their partner and it might be technique based, you might want to eliminate the ball initially just to get them used to technique of how to swing their arms and turn their hips and et cetera into a throw. Um, and that's where blocked practice is useful because you're breaking down technique. You're eliminating, again, reducing equipment, reducing individuals. Um, and so there's a lot of value in that. And then you might introduce the ball or a bigger ball, whatever it may be, getting them used to just throwing the ball back and forth. Um, whereas uh, you might also get a, a situation where you've got a student in a lower ability group um, and we'll stick with a lower ability as that's what we were talking about on that example. Um, you might also get another student who can throw the ball easily, but actually um, as you progress the activity, uh, they struggle a bit more with um, the movement, their spatial awareness, stuff around them. And so, yes, uh, they can throw it well, but as soon as you bring in those other variables, suddenly they can't throw as successful. And so that's where random practice might be more beneficial is now bringing in um, problems uh, in a in a very um, a very built built in uh, approach. So not too big too soon, um, but yeah, bringing in those other variables very slowly and gradually, where it is random now. So it could be instead of throwing in a blocked drill now suddenly they're moving after every time they've thrown the ball and it could be they're moving to new cones could be they're moving to a new space could be a color coordinated game red yellow blue green whatever it may be you call out the color they move to that after throwing um and there could be defenders in there and so it's getting them to uh, still be still be practicing that technique but now they're doing it in a more random manner um and so I do think there's value in both, but it's always going to come down to circumstance and the individual. You have to be observant as a coach, as a teacher, to spot these things and act on it. And I think quite often you will see people who don't act on it and for whatever reason that may be, it might be time constraints, it might be a lack of passion, it might be they might not feel so personable with that student, um, it might be they just don't spot it. Um, and I think it's something that should probably have a bit more CPD on um, in teaching. I mean, I've, we've both just done our training year. I know for myself, I didn't get much training on, on that area when it comes to being able to spot situations and act on it and in the right manner. Um, and I think that's just a, a, missed, a missed opportunity. Uh, and I guess that just comes through practice most of the time and you doing it in experience. I think a, a key point to that as well is um, the one thing that's common amongst schools, regardless of people, whether they're on training years, whether they're actually fully fledged teachers, um, is obviously teacher observations. But I think uh, the perhaps the most missed thing in that respect is what are you actually looking for? Because it's one thing, for example, if I observe one, one of your sessions, it's one thing me saying, I'm going to just go and see what it's about. It's another thing, for example, 
like I remember one of my first sessions and uh, one of my first lessons even, and uh, mentor took a picture and your session was in the background. And anyway, my kids, when the photo was taken, they were here, there and everywhere when I was trying to talk to you, uh, talk to them, sorry. Whereas your kids in the background were in one of your uh, famous social circles. But if I was observing <laughs> you, that probably would have gone over my head if I hadn't specifically been sort of pre-warned or somebody said, right, look at the group management techniques used rather than just go and observe the lesson. Because if I might be looking at your lesson thinking, oh, that's a great drill or that's a great activity, I'll steal that. Whereas in terms of going back to the deliberate practice, why I specifically needed to focus on that time was group management mm. techniques, as an example. Going yeah. back to, um, before we get into the perceptual side of things, one of the things you mentioned there that I want you to elaborate on is you mentioned a safe space for that student. Can you elaborate on what you mean by that? Yeah, so um, again, there's quite a lot of research on if a student doesn't feel competent in their space of learning, they'll either, I mean, to be quite blunt about it, they'll switch off, essentially. They'll just stop paying attention um, and their concentration skills radically diminish. Um, and so it's putting them in a safe space. Are they in amongst peers that are of similar, similar ability? Um, are the demonstrations being led by these peers when you have uh, a whole class? Are you continuously just using the good student who's very good at the skill? And I can understand why teachers would get into that habit. But unfortunately, what can happen is when you do that and the research supports this, the student who's not as competent will switch off because they feel they can't relate to the student who's performing the demonstration. Um, it's the same when a teacher does a demonstration. If they feel they can't relate to you, they, again, won't concentrate as much because they don't have as much, uh, they, they don't feel as related in that sense. Um, and again, that falls heavily into a psychological theory around achievement, goal and motivation theories. Um, but yeah, so that's the sort of thinking behind it is that safe space for learning. They have to feel they're amongst peers of similar ability. Um, leading to them feeling a bit more competent and then they have to also have demonstrations examples uh from students or individuals of uh, a similar level so they can relate to that individual um and that will increase confidence um and again it just it's a safer space not neglecting all the other extra things that come with it from teacher creating a safe space but that's fundamentally what i was talking about and have you come across any there's a really interesting point about using um dare i say lower ability or lower retaining peers so that other equally um not, i'm trying to think of the politically correct way to say this equally not as equally as less able pupils then see value in that rather than, for example, like you said, the kid who, I don't know, plays county football, so you pick him for every demo. Have you seen any research to, so for example, um, just me as a per personally, I mean, we've chatted like length on end about, for example, I don't know, really intricate boxing techniques performed by the highest level of performers. And I, I, I would love seeing that. Have you seen any research that suggests that, I don't know, higher ability pupils prefer these higher ability models or um yeah sorry yeah no that's you're correct so 
it's it is the same it's similar in higher ability students as well they switch off in a different manner so they switch off in the sense that they can't perform the skill so i'm not interested i already i i can't relate to that student because they can't perform the skill as well as me so they switch off in a little bit more of a and this isn't to say every time i mean you will get some students who have been nurtured in a way where they're really caring and thoughtful about no matter who's doing it they're not gonna yeah. but you will get some individuals who haven't been nurtured in that way and they will switch off in a bit of an egotistical way in the sense that i you're you're not as good as me so doesn't matter um whereas for uh, the difference is it doesn't have the impact on confidence and competence on that student the higher ability student as it would on the lower ability when it's the roles are reversed so when the lower ability is watching high ability that can their confidence can suffer from that um and they can feel less competent which we all know when you feel less competent usually performance can take a hit as well um and so that's that's sort of the bigger difference between the two but quite rightly it can still happen that with the high ability student they can quite easily lose concentration um on a demonstration when they feel the uh, demonstration isn't of their standard uh, that that makes a lot of sense i'm going to uh, almost sidetrack that or not sidetrack go a little bit more specifically into the session design um side of things so i know you're very passionate about uh, something called futsal which some listeners who follow football may be familiar with and uh, others that may mean nothing to them um so before we dive into that can you just explain what futsal is and the similarities and differences compared to football before we get into specific questions i've got about that yeah yeah um so futsal is just a small version uh of football and a lot of futsal players won't like me saying that but the reality is it is a smaller version of the game of football but the rules are vastly different and without getting too much into those and boring you too much um it's just a much simpler game uh there's less time spent um on the ball initially so as i pick the ball up i'm probably going to spend less time than i would in a football game but over the course of the game i touch the ball far more and i spend much more time on the ball if that makes sense um is there a rule regarding how long you can be on the ball um there's not when it's in play but there is from the sidelines so uh corner kicks um throw-ins etc there's rules on that so it's a three second rule um four second depending on uh what rule set you play on the but yeah so there's a rule on how long you spend there same with the keeper they have a limited amount of time on the ball before they have to release the ball um but yeah it's just it's a smaller version essentially it rapidly accelerates learning of skills such as control and passing and also even the the problem solving skills they're they're in such a smaller pitch and tighter spaces that they have to be able to work out problems much quicker than you would on a football pitch because you have more space and it's a bigger pitch um and so therefore proportionally player to pitch size is a lot bigger than what it is on a futsal um court 
so yeah it, it it's, it's tremendous in improving uh skills and especially the fundamental skills how often do you watch a game and you go he can't make a five five yard pass how how's he not made that five yard pass i could make that and so uh, a lot of the time that's simply just they haven't practiced that skill enough under that pressure enough and that's where futsal you're constantly practicing a passing skill under pressure all the time every single time you pass the ball you don't have time to think and um, so you have to constantly uh, be able to problem solve problem solve in such a small amount of time and it's incredible when you see it played at a highest level because you think how on earth has that goal just happened how have they found the solutions to get it up the other end and again it, it works on finishing uh got quite often it'd be funny if you watched how often goals are scored from the same position in futsal compared to football so if you watch like i don't know if you've seen it on them uh pro zone and stuff like that where they have um where the goals went in over the course of a season and it's scattered dramatically all over the box and maybe a few outside the box in futsal every goal majority of the time is from either the the right corner or the left corner of the goal and if you saw the graph and the stats you see the zone pretty much the same all the time with the lines maybe a millimeter out from each other every time but the shots are constantly taking place in the same space um so you get them used to that sort of i guess in a way blocked uh practice um as much as it's random in a game but you can design that where it's very blocked in training um but yeah so that's essentially the difference i don't want to go too much into stats of how much more uh you're touching the ball but i know it is ridiculous like if you saw the stat i believe it's around nine times more in a minute you're touching the ball which is why wouldn't you want to do that if it's to get better at something if you're touching it that much more yeah and uh on uh on that regard i think that almost for me i mean we've had chats about blocked and random practice i've said for example i've got this group this is what i'm thinking um and i like the way you elaborated uh, earlier in saying that it's not as simple or it's overly simplistic to say low ability group blocked high ability group random and I suppose futsal the beauty of it is that as you said you because of the nature of the game and the rule changes you've exaggerated the number of times a certain skill will be replicated but it is still random yes yeah exactly that that's exactly the I guess fundamentally that's the the biggest thing that futsal players get in contrast to football players the unfortunate thing is and i think there's a slight stigma with futsal and in this country anyway not definitely not in brazil portugal these other countries but definitely over here is it's always playing second best to football and you don't get that in these other countries because it's it's embedded from a young age from early years all the way through school um it's one of the main sports over here it's just not and i know the fa want it to be and initially it was brought in as a way to improve inclusion and participation in girl football so what was happening is girls weren't filling out 11 aside matches in schools and so 
they brought futsal in as a strategy. It's another sport similar to football that was on a smaller scale, uh, five aside. And so essentially, hopefully that will improve the being able to fill out a full-sided game and still have competitive matches. And so it did have success. And I know that through my own experience when I was at Brentford, um, I was coaching futsal and I saw girls' participation rate went up again in perspective. So you, those 10 girls you'd get for football or nine girls you'd get for football, that was you couldn't always play a full-sided game with. But those 10 or nine girls you got for futsal, you could. Um, and so it did definitely have an impact on that. But where the FA's trying to go with it is because it's now been introduced at GCSE and A-level um, spec and they're going to be graded on it they're trying to now introduce it into curriculum etc which is where I think it will go but I think it could take a little bit of time because you're asking teachers now to learn a new sport um, you're then asking them to potentially maybe get a qualification in it because they're going to be a lot of students will be picking a sport for GCSE and A level because why wouldn't you um, if you're good at football and you're not going to get a great mark in football because there's better players, why not pick futsal? Because that might actually give you more of an opportunity to get that mark that you need. Um, and so, yeah, uh, it's, it's going to be featured much more heavily in schools now. Um, and that's something that I've been, I know you're aware of, but I've been sort of pushing heavily because I see the, that's just the amount of benefits you get from playing the sport. So if we were to, so people who, for example, let's say they're not familiar with futsal, but, and they coach a different sport to football, but obviously they're like, well, you know what, accelerating the ability to rapidly solve problems. I want a bit of that. Um, I'm guessing your general recommendations, just looking at futsal as a concept would be make the pitch smaller, give them tighter space, work them in smaller groups and some kind of constraint on the rule in terms of, how quickly the ball has to re-enter play and maybe even session design where, I don't know, you know, if you've ever played on a five-a-side um, AstroTurf where you're in a cage and I mean, there you've already, I suppose you've already got the, I know you hate me for saying it and like knocking it off the wall, but <laughs> you have got that constant practice, I guess. Yeah. Um, essentially all of those apart from knocking it off the wall. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yes, no, you're spot on. Uh, and I think that message and that understanding has never been any different. It's always been that. Um, but for some reason, it's not, you will know yourself from observing lessons. I know myself from observing lessons. I know myself from coaching and seeing other coaches. It's not always the way and it's not taught that way. And it should be. There is no excuse for not teaching sport that way. Um, where you're improving all of those aspects you just spoke about. Um, and again, I, I was privy and a bit lucky to uh, have a good relationship with a mentor at uni who introduced me to a lot of these ideas um, and helped me develop these ideas to a very good uh, standard, um, along with my own, obviously, CPD as well. But um, yeah, that, that essentially, if you've got a football session or whatever sport it may be, you want to try and reduce the amount of players in a game um, so there's more touches for them 
uh, restrict space so that they have to think quicker, solve problems quicker, um, move more. Um, and again, you can introduce, like you say, maybe some uh, timed, every time it goes out, it has to be back in play within three seconds, etc. Um, but that's all gonna, that could vary depending on the group you have, etc. So teacher has to, or coach has to be aware of that and understand the group well enough to implement the, the right um, progressions in the game. If we um, almost, I suppose, take a little bit of a detour, uh, just because it sounds relevant to what you're saying here. Now, one of my potentially controversial opinions about PE, depending on your mindset, is that for most kids, again, not to stereotype, but most kids of the generation that I'm starting to see at the moment, I personally think sport in its full format, traditional format, and what I mean by that is, let's just say, I don't know, 11-a-side football, um, 7v7 netball, whatever you want to call it, I personally think it's too cognitively complex for most kids. Not to say that we can't get there, but I think to start there is probably an inappropriate starting point. And I do think the traditional PE model of, I don't know, we're going to do football and rugby in the winter, and then in summer we're going to do athletics and cricket or you know whatever that looks like. Um, sorry, I've gone on a bit of a run there and almost forgot my point. Um, but are there any ways you would look to potentially rectify that? So obviously you've said about futsal as a solid option for football. And also what I like about futsal is, I mean, I'm sure we've had it plenty of times where kids are in a lesson and they're like, oh, sir, can't we play a game? Can't we play a game? And you're like, well, for you maybe, but for some other kids that's going to go above their head. Would you have any other general recommendations for um, avoiding the potential pitfalls that come when you just chuck kids into a game each week, every week, which we both agree is probably poor teaching. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, I, as you was talking now, it was, it was reminding me of my frustration of primary school PE teaching. And I think that is where the biggest, that's where it needs to be rectified the most is something needs to be done there. And this is something that's been going on now. I can think back to when I was 18 and a young young uh, emerging student and that's nearly a decade ago now I can remember conversations between government I can remember watching it on Sky News and they were talking about how physically illiterate our kids are and stuff needs to be done in primary schools they need to fund primary schools etc but ultimately what they need to do is they need to train the teachers in these primary schools and they need to give them training that isn't four hours of their teacher degree it needs to be much more than that. And that's where the biggest um, the biggest loss is at the moment. And so that could rectify a lot of these things that we're talking about. So where, when you say, oh, you shouldn't start maybe uh, at a football match, that shouldn't be where you're, you start with these students because it's maybe too complex for them. I, it a absolutely is in a lot of scenarios because the students aren't able to, but they could potentially be able to had they had the right teaching, the right nurturing in primary school. Um, and that's where it's hugely lost. lost. Um, but yeah, obviously bringing it back to sort of ways you can start. Uh, I don't, 
personally, I always like to start things with a game, whatever that game may be. It, it could be very close to a football match. It could be very good, close to a futsal match, whatever it may be. Um, but it doesn't necessarily have to include all the same rules or the same outcomes, but again, could be very similar. So it could be they start with their hands, they're throwing the ball around, they're still playing five aside, um, they're trying to get it into an end zone rather than a goal. Um, and it could it, you could still implement all of uh, the similar situations and stuff you want to include to make it more futsal specific, such as when a goal goes in, um, it's sprinted straight to the centre spot and they play from there for a little throw to start the game. It could be if you want to increase transitions, as soon as you've got it into an end zone, rather than giving the ball to the other team, you go now back to the other end zone and you're trying to work it back that way. Um, so there's lots of places you can start, I would just say, and it, I don't think there is one sole uh, answer for any of this. I just think this is going to come down to individuals, teachers taking it upon themselves to uh, submerge themselves in this learning and practice, practice, practice as much as you want the students to practice, practice. You have to be able to practice it as well. Um, so getting on CPD courses, getting involved in governing body uh, courses and qualifications that they're providing, that is going to ultimately help support you when delivering these sessions. I mean, I thought that was a, a brilliant answer. I mean, I've said for I think as long as I can remember uh, in terms of my PGCE, how great would it be if, for example, because from a strength and conditioning background, I find that no disrespect, but much of the fitness knowledge by PE teachers is poor. And yes. um, a lot of the resources I see are just, I mean, there's no other way to describe it. They, they are poor. But then equally, the curriculum, what the curriculum awards marks for, um, like, for example, I was speaking to a chap who is head of PE at a school in Australia the other day, and he said that a student had designed a speed program and it was something like running at 90% um, max effort for, I don't know, three minutes or whatever it was, but something that's just flat out not going to get you faster. But you had to award marks because that's what the uh, specification awarded marks for. So then the people teaching this content, I always feel conflicted when I have to teach stuff because it's like, well, I need to teach you what's going to be awarded marks on the test, but you need to know that's actually wrong. But I also remember my mentor saying to me, look, don't overload them by saying, oh, this isn't true, but for the purposes of this exam, it is true. Um, anyway, gone a little ramble there, but I think how great would it be if PE teachers had to spend a day with strength and conditioning coaches or vice versa or even PGCE PE teachers have to spend a day with undergraduate strength and conditioning um, people uh, undergraduate strength and conditioning modules or people taking those modules because I even think going back to the primary school thing it's not primary teachers fault if they get four hours of training on PE across however long their degree is but I think to myself why not put secondary PE teachers with primary school teachers and then swap that around? Because even simple things like, I think routines for, like if you've got a routine in place for teaching five-year-olds, then if you can put that in place for five-year-olds, Jesus, you can manage teenagers, no problem. And I just think that transfer of skills, it wouldn't be, it can't be that difficult to set up. 
it can't be. No, it's not. And you're right. And it does happen in the sense that, so you do get primary PE teachers uh, doing uh, teaching degrees and oft, more often than not, they end up in private schools. And that's because private schools have a place for them. Uh, state schools don't always have a place for them and that's because they don't prioritize they don't care enough about the physical health of their students and I'm not saying that's a blanket um, yeah. opinion across the board but I think quite often you will see that where heads aren't interested in that um, and ultimately you can make the argument until government start funding and forcing the hand of schools to actually employ primary PE teachers, this will continue to happen. So I think you can make the argument that governments are, the government is still um, neglectful of this area until something changes. Um, and this is something, like I say, that's been going on a decade and in some cases longer. And it's a shame as well, because when you, when you look back towards sort of the 60s era, and you look at the stuff they had in place in schools. Then I can remember my dad telling me about um, how uh, his dad it, it had uh, boxing going on. That was something that he could take part in. Um, it was all about physical fitness, being healthy. And then it slowly started to disappear. I know that was something in America that uh, JFK was huge on is his PE lessons he put it's amazing when you see it you can see find this on YouTube yes yeah, really he, he funds he funds the United States um teaching curriculum and PE in specific and you can see how amazing these athletes are moving their body being in control of their body and they're doing um circuits they're doing um calisthenics to an extent um and uh, their fitness is just impeccable. And it's amazing now when you look at the, the average P student in contrast to then, and people might think the 60s is a long time ago. It's not that long ago. Um, but when you look at the difference and where we're at now, as much as I appreciate, and I know you love to talk about this, I appreciate the holistic side of uh, PE teaching, but quite rightly, same, similar to you, you cannot tell me it doesn't start with the physical. It has to, in our domain, it has to start with the physical. And then, of course, the holistic development has to be in there as well for me. It's important, like I said, bringing it back to my philosophy, it's about developing the person. I'm all about that. But I would never, ever underappreciate or neglect that the physical has to be the foundation of where we start that has to be our sole purpose um, to begin with as a PTH. What we want to achieve is improving the health of students. And then, of course, within that health is mental health, etc. And so that's where your holistic side can come into that, making students more resilient to failure, um, making them more determined human beings, more motivated, wanting to achieve success, etc. It's funny because like we've had God knows how many chats um, over the last year or so. But I think sometimes people confuse, for example, my passion on the physical side of things as, as you said, not caring or neglecting these other areas. But if I just go on a mini rant, if, uh, well, it's my own podcast, I will go on a rant. If I <laughs> but it's the whole idea that 
if you're not physically competent at a task, you're gonna lack confidence. That's the same for any area. Like for example, me, I can't play a musical instrument, therefore I'm not gonna go into playing a musical instrument with confidence. Therefore, if there is a chance to play in a local band, as a random example, I'm not gonna take that up because I don't possess the necessary skills and therefore I don't have the confidence. And if we go on to the subject of resilience, which I mean, I've got a few questions I wanna ask you in that regard, because the Association for PE's 2020 latest outcomes in their most recent up-to-date research paper, they heavily prioritize psychological stuff, which I think is great. But as an example, I was introduced to many sports as a kid, um, tried and failed many sports, but developed a physical competency, which means you can throw me into any sport. And even if I'm not the best at it, I know I've got the fundamental movement skills to participate at a reasonable enough level to have some enjoyment from that. And as an example, um, for I played in goal for the first football team I used to play for. We used to get smashed 5-0 weekly basis we, we finished the season with two points and i wish i was exaggerating but the difference was i had physical movement skills and i enjoyed that time so much that i continued to play for that team i still remember we got uh, we held the would have been champions to a draw they didn't win the league and we celebrated like we've won the league but i didn't get beaten five nil and then decide this isn't for me anymore i'm never going to do exercise ever again and that's why when we talk about resilience or we talk about mental well-being I find it very hard to, like, yes, you get people who are in unbelievable shape whose mental well-being is awful. I'm not saying that. But equally, if you're good at something and you feel like you're good at something and you have displayed competency in something, you're going to be confident in it and you're probably going to pursue similar activities that you've demonstrated competency in. Yeah. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, I understand where you're coming from on the argument. And I think I can appreciate it quite a lot because I find it quite refreshing, especially in today's age of PE teaching, because you can tell, and you know as well from being around PE teachers, it is a sort of ideology that's sort of um, disappearing, I think. Um, and that is because of stuff like you say, uh, when new research is brought out and it's, heavily focused on the psychological as much as i appreciate that and that definitely is worth investing in let's not just suddenly abandon the physical because we've got a bit of research that's talking more about psychological issues um and i agree i think there is some value in if you're physically competent then that's going to enhance your psychological competencies however i think it doesn't necessarily um, and I don't think you're saying this, but I, I don't think it necessarily increases your psychological competencies in all areas and all facets. And I think that's where maybe uh, P's trying to go is can we, especially off all the recent stories and the stuff you see in the papers about mental health, etc., and players' mental health. I think that's where they're trying to go is how can we embed this now into curriculum where we can we can help them understand the importance of these issues um but i still think like you say the physical can be can work hand in hand with that with improving that and i think the the way i personally would go about it is 
designing lessons or that explain the link better between those two because I agree with the Association for PE's outcomes. My only difficulty is, for example, um, like for my missus, her field is psychology. And my one criticism of it, if I said to you, design me a session that looks to improve a child's resilience. If I say that to 20 different PE teachers, like, yes, obviously you have the freedom to design your own lessons, but what resilience means to you might be something different to me. And for example, if I think back to some of the sessions that I used to do in my boxing days, like some of my boxing coaches, they'd have, you'd spar, but you spar two people at once with the aim of building resilience. And like, <laughs> obviously that's not gonna happen in a school context, um, but I just think how on earth do you, I mean, maybe there is a test for resilience. I'm sure someone will out there who is in this yeah, field. I'm sure, I'm sure it has been proved, but I'm like, if you've got outcomes which are very hard to prove or disprove, and I think this is the nature of PE as a whole, if you've got outcomes that are very hard to prove or disprove, those being outcomes are fine. But my issue is how do you get there? And what does, so for example, I was in um, one of my talks on my PGCE. We were listening to a presentation by a lady who was head of a PE department and she mapped out what the years, how the years, what pupils would learn and how that progressed from say year seven to year 11. And she said, oh, we're massive on assessment. We want to know that by the time we get to year 11, we're not doing the same lessons as year seven. And I'm sure we all agree, that's great. Um, so I said to her, what does a year seven lesson on resilience look like compared to year 11? And how are you tracking that? And, you know, she didn't have an answer. And it's not to say that she was wrong and I was right. And it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't me saying it in such a way of- But she wrong. was wrong and you were right. Well, <laughs> but it's just me simply saying that I don't want people to default to only measuring physical stuff because it's easy to quantify, but equally you need some kind of clarity as to what that looks like. And that would perhaps be my main critique of it rather than a criticism. Yeah, no, I, I understand why you would say that as well. I think, um, I mean, look, the honest truth is you're not going to teach resilience in one hour in a lesson like you're just not gonna um it is again and it will it will always fall back to this resilience is nurtured in individuals it's not um something they have it's something they that is nurtured and it's nurtured from a young age and it's not just based on their time in school it's also based on their experiences at home etc um and so it's very difficult to play catch up and I always find as PE teachers I always find myself in lessons where I'm playing catch up I've got students that can't move properly I'm playing catch up I've got students that um don't know the rules of games and I'm playing catch up there I mean it goes on and on that list but um I do think it has a place uh it's just again about training your teachers these teachers you want teaching your lessons training them in the area where they're able to deliver lessons that have um fundamentally some resilient aspects to it um and i can honestly say in my teacher training i got zero of that i didn't get any um resilience based lessons uh 
But what I did get through my teacher training was some understanding around those issues and how you can develop resilience through reading. But I mean, that reading exists anyway. I could have gone and seek that out myself. I think they could be more practical with it and implement it into the program. If this is where AFP want to go, then why not start implementing it into um, these uh, PGCEs that uh, young training teachers are doing? Um, but maybe it will go that way. Maybe we will see that. Well, it's funny you say that because I was about to tap into that point um, myself. I'd be very intrigued to see what PGCEs uh, look like in 2020, 2021, simply for the fact of, as you said, if this is the AFP outcomes, then that has to fill into teacher training because I'd, I'd be intrigued to see what your teacher training was like. I know we've gone through slightly different routes, um, but one of the first things I was taught was that the, we, we don't have to teach PE in the traditional sport way. Like as an example, um, I remember teaching the serve in badminton and one of the regressions was simply throwing a beanbag over a net to land in a certain area. Because for example, holding a badminton racket and hitting a shuttlecock, it's, well, one, it's a very finesse skill, but also it's probably not a skill that if you've not used a badminton racket and a shuttlecock, it's probably not something that you could necessarily steal from another sport. Um, and I remember one lad on my PGC was like, this is ridiculous. It's not badminton. I've come to teach badminton, learn it, whatever. Um, but that was a big learning curve for me because from a coaching standpoint, I'd not really experienced that. But it would be interesting to see whether now the curriculum aims are as they are, that filters down because I find it ironic that on my PGC, I was certainly taught that it doesn't have to look like sport, but then you go into schools or you read about schools or, you know, you just see what they're doing. And most of the time it is sport. Yeah. Um, interesting that, <clears throat> I mean, I can understand why that guy would get frustrated going on a badminton course and it's not badminton this because... For context, yeah, I mean, this wasn't badminton, a badminton course. It was a sort of CPD on badminton. Right, okay, but, yeah. But still. But I could, yeah, I could understand why he would get frustrated um, because ultimately, if I was teaching badminton to a young class, so I'm going to primary school now, I'm not going to get them throwing beanbags. What I might do, though, is I might get them throwing shuttlecocks and getting them used to the flight path of a shuttlecock, what it feels like in your hand, how it moves over the net, uh, the different types of shot you can play by throwing it. Can you throw it short? What does that look like over the net? What does it look like when you throw it long over the net? Because you will see a completely different flight path with a shuttlecock than you will with a, bab uh, sorry, with a beanbag. And so I think there is value in teaching things in a more broken down way. Um, if they can't use a badminton racket but don't go too far away from the sport i always feel quite often you will see PE teachers especially go miles away from the sport to teach a technique that ultimately now you're not even teaching that technique um and i think that's where you've got to be a little bit careful because yes it's good to be able to show you can differentiate um and show that you can transfer other sports across a variety of different levels but don't go too far away from it and I, I've I've personally been that person who was frustrated 
on CPD courses where you're watching it and you're going, this isn't the sport now. We're not teaching the sport. And I've got frustrated as well. Um, but the, the, the right idea is there. I mean, yeah. I understand what they're trying to get at. I know what you're trying to get at. I just think there's better ways of getting at that, so to speak. Um, so, yeah, uh, I think it is an area that needs to also be addressed when we on these CPD courses. It's funny as well with the, um, the I think it's the cognitive action cycle or the perceptual action cycle, i.e. you perceive something, your brain interprets it, coordinates a movement response and you respond. Um, but yeah. just to share one of my big mistakes in that regard, um, I wrote a blog on it probably about five, six years ago now. Um, but I was doing some movement skill coaching with a couple of badminton players and basically I'd marked out the court. I mean, we were on a track at the time because of facility restrictions and I wasn't getting the intent that I wanted from uh, one of the athletes. So anyway, I threw a ball at her when she was getting towards the cone or whatever to try and think, right, get there quick enough to catch the ball. And obviously she was an elite level badminton player. But if we go back to that holistic um, aims of PE or whatever you want to call it, in my mind, when a kid leaves PE in year 11, as well as understanding how to take care of their own health, they should be able to have achieved all certain things, which let's be honest, as you alluded to earlier, they should be able to catch in primary school. That should be a fundamental movement skill. Anyway, long story short, the ball hit her square in the face. She cried. She left. True story. Um, I had to apologize to the lead strength conditioning coaches session who I was covering. We discussed it um, and apologized to the <laughs> athlete and we got on fine ever since then. But we'd gone so far away from the sport because the hand positioning to catch a ball is completely different to the uh, way your hands are going to be if you're returning a shuttlecock. And as you said, even though I had the right idea, the actual implementation was you know, com completely wrong. Yeah, and I don't think you're wrong for trying out the tennis ball technique. I think where that comes from, though, is now after trying it out, you've now realised, actually, I think there's a better way I could do it. And quite often, these, um, these methods are learned that way through experience, trial and error. Um, but there are some obvious indications. I know when I throw a beanbag, and this isn't having like a moan or a rant at anyone, but when I throw a beanbag over a net, I know the beanbag weighs more than the shuttlecock. It's not shaped the same as the shuttlecock. So therefore it's going to move completely different over the net. And also just based on observing a shuttlecock and a beanbag, I can see it has a different flight path. Obviously the way I've said that might sound a little bit rude, but um, it's just fundamental, right? Just be very observant um, and then start to think about situations you can create that are very similar that you feel could be impactful. And quite often that will come through just having a good mentor um, on these courses, etc. Um, I mean, like I say, a lot of the stuff I've learned haven't been my own own idea. It's been someone else's idea. Um, and maybe I've just adjusted or tweaked a few bits here and there along the way. Um, but yeah, uh, it's, it's, it, I've been that person on the course who gets frustrated that we're going away from the sport now and um, with the right idea just not the wrong implementation yeah yeah and i don't i think 
Um, funny enough, one of the uh, questions I meant to ask you earlier when we were talking about futsal and football uh, was relating to perceptual motor skills, which I've done a podcast on previously. And the question was whether or not game sense can be taught. And if so, if so, how? Because I think as PE teachers, most PE teachers are great at breaking down, say, a skill in isolated movement. Or, as you said, they may be getting better at incorporating elements of teamwork, resilience, uh, confidence, etc. Um, but in terms of game sense, so just, I mean, sometimes you, it's almost the stuff you don't see, which is more important. Um, anyway, waffling on there. Do you think game sense can be taught? And if so, how would you go about doing that? Uh, I think... I think fundamentally, most of the time, it is taught without teachers realising it's taught. So I think most of the time, when PE teachers teach a lesson, and again, coaches as well, when they're delivering their session, they're quite often changing parts of the session um, for different reasons. And a lot of the time in coaching, you'll hear the word progressions in a way that is sort of game sense because you're modifying game rules, uh, the playing area, equipment, um, for the purpose of highlighting aspects of the game. Um, and so I think it is already sort of implemented in lessons and in uh, coaching sessions, but I think it potentially could do with sort of a, a modification in itself in the sense that... Um, it needs to be brought to the current um, current year we're in because I think quite a lot of the old progressions that I've seen in certain sports are very bland. And I think that, again, I know I hate coming back to it because it seems like an easy way out and a scapegoat, but the more you're on CPD, the more qualifications you do in a sport, the better you get at this, at modifying games. There's no easy way around it. I can't just tell you everything right now you're going to have to learn through experience you're going to have to learn through trial and error you'll be able to take bits of information uh, from people along the way I'm still doing that myself um, but I think it is an area that needs a bit of modifying in like I say football futsal is a great modification of football that is very uh, current very relevant and it's going to be growing so let's get on that train now while it's beginning to move and pick up speed because I, by the time it's at full speed, there'll be something new. There'll be something that, uh, something else to add in. So I think it's just staying relevant, current, what's on topic, what's on trend. Um, and then it, not to neglect old methods, old traditions, old teachings. I think you can still implement some of the stuff. Um, but it's funny, I mean, I was on a CPD this year with a um, guy who was delivering, uh, I forget what they called the course, but even the course had an old traditional name for essentially, um, it was like fitness or something. It was very bland. It was an old name for, the, for what we were doing. And what he covered was essentially the practical side of GCSEP and even what they're learning is stuff I was learning. Uh, why are we still learning the same techniques, methods, uh, training methods for how to do a sit and reach test? Why is it always the same thing? And that's where 
I just laugh and I sit there and I think it's so it's it's actually bad and it's a little bit sad in a way that we're still teaching the same things that ultimately are only testing flexibility in one area um and it isn't necessarily sport specific and yes oh okay well in the new GCSE spec we're getting them to critically think about well how can we make it more sport specific is the sit and reach test good for um footballers is it good for weightlifters whatever it may be well yeah it's great that you're getting them to be critical on that and it's nice that you've maybe provided one other option but why aren't we actually teach them a bit more about this and that's where i think it gets missed and lost and we don't stay on trend and we don't stay up to date and current and i think that maybe comes down to the p teacher themselves i also think it can come down to what is it within the spec and um what may we know personally we've got a long way to go for training our teachers to the like perfect standard and i don't think you find that standard until maybe a long way down the line with a lot of deliberate practice the old ten thousand hour rule we've spoke about this just because i did ten thousand hours doesn't mean i'm going to be a master at it if i've done ten thousand hours of really crap uh, practice then i'm i'm not going to be as good as someone who's done maybe two thousand hours of deliberate practice who maybe will be a lot better than me at that um, style of teaching or implementing those things we're talking about. And I love your analogy on um, a blog of yours on the 10,000 hour rule, that if the 10,000 hour rule existed, why are there so many bad drivers on the road? Yeah. <laughs> it, so it, true. It's funny because again, not to try and, um, not to try and sound like, for example, secondary school teachers are above primary school or strength and conditioning coaches are above any of that. Um, but it is just interesting, like you said, if PE teachers resting on their laurels once they've got the qualification in the sense that to keep my accreditation as a strength and conditioning coach, I've got evidence that I've done certain amounts of CPD and very specific CPD. Um, and again, I know that, for example, a lot of school, well, every school does CPD in one way, shape or form. But if we go back to deliberate practice, if you're getting CPD on stuff that is irrelevant to areas that you are struggling with then you're not going to be a better teacher like i could sit in a cpd talking about i don't know the best way to teach the different rock types in geography i mean that's a completely random example but you can see how just saying oh but i did so many hours of cpd and it's like well where they focused on your weaknesses or actually did you sit in there and you were checking your emails because you're bored out of your mind or whatever yeah no i agree and uh it, I mean, it's funny because I know of, a, <clears throat> so Arsenal Football Club, for example, I mean, how true this is, I don't know. I could be wrong. Um, but I know there was, um, I think under the Wenger era, they had SNC coaches who were still um, teaching players techniques and training methods that were about 10, 15 years out of date because when they had, and they kept getting injuries and they wanted to find out why do, do we keep getting so many injuries? And and this might not be the sole reason, but this probably plays a part in it. They they kept getting these injuries, same sort of players, lots of a large amount of their squad going out of with injuries. And uh they wanted to find out why. Why was this happening? And the the answer was they were using out of date methods and practices. And so they in the end they they got on a new SNC team, and it, I think I think it was from an American football team. I could be a bit off here, but um, 
essentially some American S&C coaches came in and the methods, the practices changed probably for the better as well. Um, but again, the same argument is made. Why are we teaching things that are out of date? And these, as much as this isn't necessarily as physical in the sense that it might have the same physical implications as it did at Arsenal, we could still have the same implications on the person, whether it be mentally, psychologically, emotionally, however it may be, in the same manner if we don't stay on trend and up to date. And I think that's bringing it back to the AFP. I think that's where I do quite like what they're doing is they're trying to stay up to date, trying to stay on trend. But right now, this is a big issue. Let's make the most of it while the train's moving before it picks up full speed and we've missed missed the train essentially. Um, so I, I like I like that. Um, but it's definitely a problem in the practical side of PE. You'll know from teaching it. I know from teaching it. It's very outdated. Some of the stuff. Some of it's better than other units. Like there are some units that are good on it. But there's a lot that's not great on it. Um, and you see it in coaching as well. You see, and um, we just spoke about it, as I was saying there. Yeah, I, mate. I think that's. Uh, I think that's spot on. Like I said, I don't disagree with the AFP outcomes. I think they're great, and as you said. I think there's probably never a better time to start investing in those kind of things, but it does need to be, dare I say, a thorough investment, investigation, whatever. And as you said, you hope, you would hope that these things, if they're that important, we're drip feeding them into training, we're designing sessions. I would even go as far as, again, I said about strength conditioning coaches, training places with a day or learning from primary school teacher, PE teacher, secondary school teacher, whatever. Like, I would actually quite like to see some psychologists collaborate with PE teachers or even, you know, why not? Why not? Like, let's bring areas together. Let's move forward. Yeah. Other than, like, I've learned loads in terms of teaching just in a classroom setting from watching science teachers do their thing. And like, I think why not try and learn from other people who, yes, they might be outside of your field per se, but they're going to bring you skills and solutions that you've not seen presented before. Yeah. And I think as well, just um, to touch on that, start bringing psychology uh, students or teachers towards sort of the PE side of it. I think that also is going to come down to um, where you can make improvements is individuals who are going on courses that want to be PE teachers. I think, I mean, I don't know for sure what is on a physical education uh, degree. Uh, unit wise but I think I'm right in saying that so for, for me I did a sports psychology and coaching science degree I had a heavy amount of psychology in there and a heavy amount of coaching um, of course we still touch on all the generic sports science issues just like most sports science degrees now I'm not saying I'm anywhere near a master in uh, psychology but what I did get from that is I had three years um, of uh, studying that each year had a heavy amount of psychology in and it gave me a good foundation to just be able to talk about those issues and understand the issues a bit better and theories when I was teaching. Um, I also had a year in there because it was a placement a sandwich course. I had a year in there between the second and third year that allowed me to go out and get a bit of experience, do a bit of practice and I was able to also 
bring to light some of those psychological theories and see it and understand it a little bit more. And I think that's another thing that if you're aiming to go down the P teacher route, based on AFA, AFP, what they're talking about as well with mental issues, mental psychological issues, I think you should consider looking at courses now that have a lot of psychology. Because I do think it makes you more aware, but also I, I actually think it, it helps you as a teacher um because you, it definitely allows you to understand the person and the thinking behind people and actually maybe uh their upbringing and how that's influenced how they are as a person and their core values and then how that then relates to their um role related behavior and then their typical responses i mean it's something it's, it's a psychological theory they talk about heavily and it starts with typical responses in the outer ring and then it goes into your role-related behavior in the inner ring. And then in the center spot, you've got your core values and how they're all intertwined and interlinked. And so how, uh, and a good example is this, Luis Suarez, and uh, when he uh, bit Ivanovic. Now that wasn't something new. And people who are football fans will know that. He'd already done it, I think, maybe twice before then. And so that's a typical response. Now, people might think that's a bit of an exaggeration to say, but that is a typical response. When he hits that arousal level where he's lost it, his typical response isn't to swear at a player. It's not to kick a player. It's not to push a player. His typical response when he's hit the arousal level where he's now dipping and he's lost it and he's raging, and he's hit red, is to bite a player because we've seen it on a few occasions. So that typical response is then resulting to his role-related behaviour. Um, and without going too far into all of this, but they're all linked. And it, what it boils down to is the person's core values. So what they've been taught. And culture comes into that. Uh, religious beliefs, your beliefs, personal beliefs, uh, what you've been taught, um, what you value as a person influences the role-related behaviour. So the role you feel you play within the um, environment so do you feel your leader whatever it may be how you perceive your role and then that will then you'll typically respond based on those values and how you perceive yourself in that situation and so in that situation Suarez bit Ivanovic but um all of these things you see in lessons I see them in lessons how how students react to me when I ask something of them and they maybe are a bit stressed they'll have a typical response and you sit you'll see students typical response it might be a uh, um, dismissal where they ignore you and they don't respond it might be where they become confrontational and that all then uh, links into their how they perceive themselves in that situation in that environment etc and their values no mate I think that was I think that was spot on funny enough um, one course I would recommend um, especially where social distancing is concerned. Um, but I did a um, mental health in sport awareness course through First for Sport. And um, I think I mentioned earlier, but my, uh, my missus is a psychologist. And it, the start of the course basically said, if you had somebody with one of these mental health issues in your session, how would you accommodate it? And, you know, stuff like schizophrenia, bipolar, uh, OCD, et cetera, et cetera. And I was thinking, Jesus, I don't have a clue what that would look like. And like, you know, I'm starting to think, hang on a minute, I'm 
not a psychologist. This is out of my remit as a PE teacher, strength conditioning coach. And not only is it out of my remit in that regard, but it's also well, well out of my knowledge base. Um, but I'd highly recommend that course um, because, well, one, from a safeguarding perspective, what you can slash should say and what you can't slash should not say, um, but just improving awareness of these things. And like you said, what they look like. So I think too often, especially one of the behavior management, um, I suppose, lines that I like a lot is talking about depersonalizing behavior and saying, for example, you would never say uh, to a pupil, oh, I don't like you as a person or, you know, but it's more, I don't like your behavior because of X, Y, Z, or your behavior is the problem rather than students feeling like they themselves are the problem. But it just goes a lot deeper than the surface level behavior. And another interesting uh, program, whilst I'm on the subject, is uh, Channel 4 have had a program, uh, I think it's called Britain's Best Parents, but it's fascinating because you see parents, um, their children then spend time with other parents living by those parents' rules, those parents' style. And mm. it's funny because I feel like having watched that program, when you see kids around another parent's house, you get to understand why those kids respond to certain situations in the ways that they do. So yeah. you know, I'm, I'm sure we both had it where you taught um, certain children and you're like, almost you just think wow that's a really interesting behavior to have in relation to you know xyz like you know obviously you might get your typical responses in terms of uh, i don't know non-doers in pe uh, or even competitive pupils within pe but then you get some behaviors which are just they're almost odd or interesting and then like you said you when you watch a program on parenting when you learn more about mental health or when you start to learn more about as you said those cultural values that influence people all of a sudden you start to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And this is where I think you alluded to it earlier, that society perceives teachers as almost being more worthy than sports coaches. Yeah, I remember um, a colleague of ours saying, you know, teachers are glorified sports coaches, um, but it's not to underplay the role that sports coaches play, because as you said, once you, if you're interested in the psychological aspect or, you know, how deep the rabbit hole goes in that regard, there's so much more that goes into a good session than being like, oh, I've seen these drills and great, we'll use them because I saw somebody else use them and they worked great. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I guess, again, just not to steer too far away from it, that's why I feel um, having that psychological side to whatever degree you're learning, especially in teaching, and for me, I can only speak for PE teaching, I feel it has helped massively is I don't lose sight of the fact that actually that, that there's so much more complexities within what's happening. So when I'm having a conversation with a student, how they respond to me is based on so many factors. Um, and so as much as I don't always understand the full side of what everything is behind that um, comeback from the student, whatever it may be, at least it allows me to understand to have a sort of basis of knowledge and a foundation foundation to understand that there's some psychological um, reasons maybe behind why they're reacting this way and psychological not being, I'm not trying to use that word in a sort of overwhelming way, but sort of in just the essence of what it is, is that, as I was saying, 
you know, you've got typical responses from students. They are embedded by within uh, the role-related behaviour they feel they are. And obviously the values are linked in there. So I try not to lose sight of that when I am having conversations or a confrontation with a student and that actually I need to, I need to rein it in in some places and then in other places, um, maybe there's further action needed. And it's also interesting because I feel like when you know stuff like that, you either catch yourself doing it or you catch colleagues doing it where they say stuff and you're like, have you really thought that through in terms of, what that state what you think that statement means and what the students yeah. interpret it like you know yeah. i'll give you an example if a teacher said something like oh would you do that at home and i always think yeah. you have no you probably have no idea you have no idea child's, like you know yeah. you, you don't know whether that's a perfectly logical thing for that child to be doing at home whatever the hell that happens to be um but yeah it's so easy to catch yourself even silly little things like i don't know um some teachers, I mean, personally, I prefer if I'm talking to a group, I do like eye contact from pupils, so I think they're listening. Whereas, mm. for example, I know to other teachers that's not that important, or they appreciate that, for example, you can be listening even if you're not directly looking at the speaker. Yeah. And that's one of the examples where I've had to rein it in. Um, and it's as long as I can see when we go into a task that you're doing what you should have done based on what I said, then that's fine. Um, yeah. But it's when you don't do that where I'm like, right, does me looking at you, not looking at me, indicate you're not listening? Or as you said, is it a cultural thing? Because I think, I can't remember what culture it is, but I do know that there is a certain culture where looking an older person directly in the eyes is considered disrespectful. Um, yeah. And I wish I could remember which one it was, but there's so many little things like that that you, as you said, are completely unaware of. If we carry on down the psychological route, just in the questions wrapping up, what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions there are when it comes to sport and psychology within sport? Um, I think there was, yeah. So the, the, the big one for me, and I just like talking about it myself because I came from a sporting background and I played sport competitively. Big one for me was superstitions growing up. And I used to see it all the time in football and it is very, it's quite a, it's a bit of a cultural thing in football. You'll see, superstitious players superstitious managers um and it's this idea that uh superstitions can ha have have some sort of bearing on how i perform and we just know that not to be true um and the bit that i, th I think this is a misconception is how much pre-match routine plays in it and i don't think players are aware enough of it um, at lower levels, at elite level, I think most players are, um, because you can't not be, because they're doing everything to the very best. They've got sports scientists all over it. But as just a common misconception, is that superstitions are gonna have, and at elite level, this is still a problem. So this is where there is a misconception, but superstitions have some sort of bearing on my performance. And it's not, it's just not, there's no truth to that. Um, in contrast to pre-match routine. And I guess just to sort of explain what both are. So superstition being, um, I'm sure you've you've heard of it yourself in the sense that it could be, you know, you're wearing your lucky pants today or you've put your right sock on first before you left or your right boot on before you left. Um, or you've done a certain thing in a certain way and it sort of borderlines. It can 
delve into OCD and it does come from a psychological place um, and it's a negative psychological place. A pre-match routine is a positive psychological place and it's something that you know can positively impact performance or improve performance. Quite often superstitions negatively impact performance because you feel how you perform is solely reliant on a superstitious behavior that you have pre-match. Um, whereas a pre-match routine, good example of a pre-match routine would be a golf player. He, um, I think Tiger Woods might do this. I think he uses pretty much every club or he uses a set of irons before he goes out and plays. And he hits a certain amount of shots with all those irons. And he has to hit, say, 30 shots with his pitching wedge, his sand wedge, um, his nine and his eight iron, let's just say. So he hits these shots and he has to hit 30 with each one. And it's not superstitious. It's a pre-match routine. He has to hit it because he knows then he has practiced um, his, set, his set amount of shots. He's practiced this set amount of shots with each club before he goes out and plays. It makes him feel confident. He knows he's ticked that box. He now knows that he can perform or feels he can perform. Um, a superstitious uh, behaviour has nothing to do with performance. So putting your socks on the right way or wearing certain kit isn't going to have any impact on how you perform. And so I think that is a common misconception that you'll see in young uh, athletes um, and you'll also see it occasionally, even at the top level. I mean, Jack Greedish, I think, is one that you could probably talk about. His socks, why he wears them so low. That might be an image thing, but I'm sure there's a little bit of superstition in there. Um, and and John Terry was another bad one for it. He's come out and spoke about superstitious things he used to do. I've had managers who, uh, I had one who, this is a ridiculous story, um, but he, on a cup final, when he was younger and he played, and he was a good player, played um, high non-league football, he won cup final, uh, weed on a corner flag before a game. Sounds ridiculous, right? But because they won that cup final, every cup final from player <laughs> and manager, he had to do it. And so, I mean, bizarre, probably could be arrested for that if someone uh, <laughs> But bizarrely enough, he felt how he performed, how the team performed was reliant on whether he did that action, which is outrageous. Um, so I guess that is that is something that needs to be addressed because it still goes on. And I think what you need to try and educate athletes on and everyone involved is that superstitions is a, is a negative, will always be, a negative impact on performance in contrast to pre-match routines that can be positive um, when they're done correctly. And I guess that's that would be one of the main ones for me. Thank you for listening to episode number 20 of the Platform to Perform podcast with myself, Todd Davidson, and today's guest, George Green. If you like the podcast, feel free to leave me a review via iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. And if you would like to go one better and you're in a position to do so, then you can support the podcast by heading to www.patreon.com forward slash Todd Davidson P2P Coaching. 
in exchange for subscribing, you'll receive access to my exclusive strength and conditioning educational content, all the programs that I've designed, and every lesson I've delivered as part of Calisthenics Kids. Calisthenics Kids aims to improve strength, movement skill, and confidence in children to improve their physical literacy and their well-being. In episode 21 of the Platform to Perform podcast, you'll be listening to part two of my episode with George Green, where we speak about where football tactics originated from, the importance of reading outside of your field, and how to build a brand within something you love. Thank you for in tuning in, and I will catch you again in the next episode. Yeah.